Hello and welcome to another episode of Talking Tropes. I'm Hannah. I'm David and we're talking genres, we're talking industry trends, we're talking Netflix hot topics uh, and hot topic maybe in general. <laughs> we're talking teen rom-coms on Netflix. Yeah. So much kissing. So much kissing. Really just sexless kissing and then sexy kissing are like the two modes that Netflix operates under. Um, so I wanted to to talk about this because it's 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 becoming a thing like it wasn't a thing even five years ago. We've, we have this. Yeah, become a thing in the last five years, I would agree. Yeah, and it's it's sort of a resurrection of, of a genre of film through a kind of renaissance of of literature, right? Yeah, <laughs> of a type. Sort of, yes, yes, <laughs> yes. Uh, a renaissance of this genre of YA literature um, that, uh, that that's resulting in a lot of industry types saying we've reached this new level uh, of of the teen rom com uh, being. Not maybe not profitable in the way that we would think of if theaters were still around, but now that theaters are like dead, uh, having something to watch on your Netflix screens is uh, is super important. Uh, yeah. And the you know the largest user base of Netflix is teenagers, young people, right. little ones. Uh, <laughs> Other Little synonyms. <laughs> Our youth. They're like, okay, yeah, God. Like I know um, we're getting old, but we're not that old. <laughs> well, I felt really old watching a lot of these because they they okay. do make you feel like kind of a creep, especially the more sexual ones, uh, where you you do have, of course, their twenty somethings always playing these right. uh, these teens. But it's just like the overt sexuality is something that I didn't, you know, encounter very much, you know, in my in my youth, <laughs> my teenage years. You know, I guess there was like super bad and there was easy A. Yeah. Uh, which I see in, in your background if anyone's watching the video version of this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, but that was like the birth of like the raunchy comedy. And then uh that sort of replaced I mean, I... the teen rom-com as like a tentpole film sure yeah um but you know i i would say like that raunchy teen comedies you know targeted specifically at teens i guess were were more of a 2000s thing like i would even include like mean girls in that you know like it's a sure, little bit you... raunchier than like your average like, I don't know, but like, is Heather's in the eighties was also very like, right. Well, that was like a cult, a cult classic. I mean, that was yeah. did terribly box office at the time, and it, it <laughs> thrived on video. But uh, you know, there were a, a lot of you know in the eighties, it was sort of a tentpole thing that you could release these big budget uh, teen romances, dramas, Teen Wolf. Uh, uh, let's right. see. Um, what were, what were all the Molly Ringwald ones? Sixteen Candles, right. Breakfast Club, uh, mm-hmm. the John Hughes type movies, Ferris Bueller. Yeah. These are like the movies that I think a lot of the modern day producers are trying to replicate from their own childhoods. It's sort of a yeah. forty year rule kind of thing uh, right. that things come come back around over time. Because because all the people who were kids growing up with it, you know, are now in positions of power. So of exactly. course they're going to get nostalgic for their own childhoods, et cetera, et cetera. Right. But I mean, of course that nostalgia, you don't even have to be alive for it to, to experience it. I mean, that's why stranger sure. things was so powerful, you know, so popular. Absolutely. And so I think Netflix I mean... as a brand is sort of <laughs> built on this foundation of nostalgia for like the bygone eras of films that no longer can make it to theaters can survive on little right, streaming right. sites and and that that nostalgia is what draws people in um like i we we read an interview um with two of the uh the guys currently like heading um netflix's like 
the yeah. two divisions, you know. Netflix has these, like, different divisions. Uh, I was at a, a Q&A with uh, Vincent Marcello, who directed uh, both of the Kissing Booth movies. Um, and he was sort of describing how when he was pitching the movie, uh, they weren't sure whether to give it to their, like, more adulty, sexy teen division or their more youth-oriented division and they were sort of fighting over it and that created like a slowdown in the production process this like barrier to overcome of being on the border of too sexy not sexy enough um, right like are we going more riverdale with this or are we going a little bit more uh you know seventh heaven <laughs> i don't know if that's teen but there are teens in that show there were teens there if it's more high school musical basically or yeah um you know, or, Gossip Girl, Riverdale, Vampire right. Diaries, yeah, all these things. Um, and and sort of, you know, he was a director who came from. He did like Teen Beach Movie, uh, mm, and then you know, it, he also had done you know uh, other things like uh, a short film called Zombie Prom with RuPaul that was very well received. But um, fascinating. But the point was that he was sort of known for doing, you know, uh, teen-oriented musicals and that he was, like, venturing into something more sexy. And so that was part of, like, this process of of yeah. matriculating all of these YA sort of... Where there's a little more freedom in terms of what you can represent sexually to the visual, where it's very limited and people freak out if you get too sexualizing of young people yeah well so the 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 guys <laughs> are are matt broadly and ian brickle um and uh there's a an interview with them that in the hollywood reporter um and in this interview they're they're talking about how you know they are specifically like looking to all of these kind of new areas to basically revive a kind of dead genre, you know, um, and that this was not something that studios are really investing in anymore because the amount of return they are seeing just wasn't worth it compared to spending $5 trillion on seven different versions of the same Justice League movie. Um, right, at least not for theaters. Yes. And, like, you'll see that the ones of these in this genre that haven't been released on Netflix, they're on Hulu, they're on HBO Max a little bit, but, you know, not not a lot yet because HBO is still very much more adult-oriented in, in their yeah. target demo. And uh, and then iTunes. You know, some of these are sort of like the modern-day direct-to-video uh, release, but yeah. there's, no, there's no video. The Apple so Plus. Adult. But they are on Apple Plus. They're not, like, exclusive to the streaming service. They're, like, pay, you know, twelve ninety nine to watch this on iTunes. So I think that's mm. interesting also that uh yeah there's there's a new there's no longer direct to video but there are direct to video level productions often based on Wattpad novels. Yeah, yeah. Um a lot of them are based on novels and Wattpad specifically. Um and it's you know obviously the film industry plumbing the publishing industry for content is nothing new. It's it's always been this way, basically. Right. But I think that uh -huh. over time, it, it definitely has gotten more so. The idea that, like, you can't produce a project unless it's been tested in some market, whether that's in right. literature or in, like, a web series or something. Mm -hmm. And and the, right. the places you... that they're willing to look has broadened significantly, where it used to be, like, New York Times bestselling novels and literary fiction from the 18th century or right. or earlier uh now it's more you know you can get fan fiction you can get fan fiction with the the serial numbers filed off it's it's a much right. wider spectrum uh, absolutely um and i think you know the benefit of that is if you've got a fanfic that has you know a hundred thousand views or more you know the the studio knows that you're coming in with a built-in audience um and like that's kind right. of all that matters especially for streaming where you know it's not so much oh we can if you've got a good enough concept we can hook other people on it you know for streaming it's like we are the place to get this thing that you love you know like that is kind of what like streaming has 
uh, evolved into now that there's not just Netflix, now that there's Netflix and Disney Plus and Hulu and Apple Plus and HBO Max, you know, it's like they each need to have the thing that's going to draw someone in to get those subscription dollars and they're competing against all of the other subscription service for that audience basically absolutely um, so if yeah. they know that the like competition. this is gonna right and this is gonna get like ten thousand teens to make their parents like get continue their netflix subscription then they will make it and it's worth it for them and what's especially great i think industry-wise about these movies is that they're relatively cheap to make you know because they're young actors you don't necessarily need someone who's already got a ton of name recognition like some of them like we'll see like um there are certainly exceptions <laughs> um <laughs> and people who either break out in in these uh netflix movies or or are brought in and then become sort of mainstays uh yeah, let's not let's not tease them. Let's just say, okay, so yeah. like Noah Centineo was <laughs> made in this in this crucible of right, right. coming out of Disney, you know, Disney Channel stuff, and then he's he evolved out of that he, into this into Netflix stardom. He was in uh, he was a, a side character in Austin and Alley, you know, sort of a, oh, de- a decom okay. or not decom, de sitcom, whatever you call those, right. Yeah. Um, and so that was like his first role because Disney is good at finding attractive, uh, underaged people. That's their job. And there's no wonder that there's a lot of conspiracy around Disney for that reason. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I mean, the less we say about not that. Not to lend <laughs> any credence to any of that. Um, but the, the point but is. Regardless, yeah. So like Disney he... makes some stars that then go on to go into all of these different Netflix and streaming and, and, or, you know, you get like, um, like KG, uh, um, or KJ app is Applegate. I always forget the guy who plays Archie on Riverdale. Like he's (laughs) in a bunch of these as well too, you know, like he's just like become teen heartthrob and like, that is what these movies are about. And and Netflix is all about like star Um, production too. So you have things like Sierra Burgess where they took the star from stranger things um, or... Well, the the breakout black horse character. <laughs> what breakout black horse or, or dark horse? Yeah, the dark horse I candidate. Because she just played Barb, and Barb gets killed off in like season no, one. No, I mean, but this is the, the point: is like they try to reuse people who they see as right. like having potential because they're exactly. all about like talent cultivation, and that's with writers and directors and all these people. They're like, if we can get you one project, we're gonna try and get you three. Um, so right. you can really like test, you know, how viable you are. Um, mm-hmm. And if you and, are viable, we hope that that results in loyalty. <laughs> <laughs> right. And I think that the idea of testing things and being very experimental because Netflix has all of the money, all of it, and <laughs> they're willing to lose it. They're willing to lose most yeah. of it. And, uh, and like, that's not a problem for them. So all of these movies... Um, you know, the Netflix release schedule is that they'll release something, they'll target it at like who they think it should be targeted at. Uh, and then they'll give it a week and then they'll see who's actually watching it. And then they'll identify all of the users and all of the users who are like kind of similar to that user. And if it's popular enough, they'll really push it to everybody. And if it's not, they'll just kind of bury it. Like, you know, there are so many movies on the list that like, I watched like the trailer for and I was like, I'd never seen this trailer before. It was never suggested to me, but you know, uh, to all the boys, you know, you see ads for that on like the subway, you know, there's like real push for these things. Yeah. Um, And I mean, some of that I think has to do with how popular the IP that it's based off of was prior to Netflix, you know, like to all the boys I love before series was like, huge in YA it it sold it was constantly on the bestseller list for right. um, I think like I think you're fiction. I think you're definitely right about that but the way that Netflix markets themselves is that they'll say no we give everyone a fighting chance whether that's true right. or not but they'll say <laughs> look we put this out the first week this many people clicked on it and 
because of that, we decided it, this could, you know, this could go big internationally. And so we pushed it in this mm -hmm. region and that region. And then it didn't do as well in this country. So we now we need to make a localized Indonesian rom-com because we didn't, you know, we didn't do well enough there Crack with this that one. market. Right. No, I mean, seriously. So, I mean, if you look on, like, the list of of rom-coms and you start going further down it, obviously we don't get recommended the, the foreign language ones immediately. Uh, but, uh, you'll get like, um, uh, something like all the freckles in the world is like a Mexican, uh, teen rom-com because they, they really love teen rom-coms down there, but weren't as big on these like, you know, kissing booth or whatever. And yeah. then Oh Ramona is based on like a Romanian novel that was really okay. popular in Romania or something, you know? Yeah. And then Love Like the Falling Rain is, I think, more of like a like a dramedy, teen dramedy thing. And it's in Indonesia. So it's like the different markets that they can't break with our normal IP or our, our American IP. Then we need to get right. more localized versions. Right. Well, I mean, you know, it's it's. Yeah, I feel like we could go on a whole rabbit hole about, uh, you know, foreign foreign uh, offerings on Netflix and what is and isn't available and what gets popular right. and what... And, of course, you know, what's successful gets sequels and spinoffs and, yes. you know, whatever. But, uh, totally. yeah. And, and, and they also have to hit a broad spectrum, right? So, like, mm -hmm. Kissing Booth, very, very different in tone from To All the Boys, very, very different in tone from, like... All the Right Places, which is going for a more prestige drama, like, they bring in Elle Fanning for that one, because, like, we right. need star power for this one. It can't just yeah. sell itself on camp and fun. Right, exactly. And, you know, that's another one that was, like, a YA breakout. Like, it had, like, prestige, somewhat prestigious, uh, like, origins, especially compared to things like Kissing Booth or... Um, uh, like after or something like that. So like, what, what's your perception of, of, you know, how these certain IPs get popular in their niches and how that translates to popularity in film? I know that's I mean, kind of a big question. Yeah. That's gigantic. Um, if I also, if I had like the perfect answer to this, I would be a billionaire uh, <laughs> and would have written 20 novels by now. Um, right. But like, do you see like there being a, like an or version of this, like an an or rom com YA book that sort of spawned a lot of these spinoffs, or do you attribute to Twilight popularity? Or I mean, I think I think Twilight probably has a lot to do with it. Um, you know, I'm not familiar with how common it was. I mean, it's it's also because YA as a genre is still relatively new. You know, like. Mm. It, when did, it, what 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 year would you say YA became what I it mean, is? Like the nineties are kind of when like YA became like a thing. Like maybe okay. at some point in the the eighties, like it was still mostly like picture books and then some like you know Ramona Quimby middle grade style sure. like. Uh, super fudge and, and, stuff and like middle that. grade that's a that's a more recent term right or uh yeah yeah it's or, or it's at least an industry term um so like that you know those are the books that you read anywhere between like second grade to it, it's sort of like just beyond chapter books but not right. quite like ya novels but, but were there so any like, in in like that were adapted into these teen rom-coms were there any of those that sort of bordered on middle grade or anything like that um, you know, because oh it's like God. Wattpad like, is is different from from you know the traditional you know, publishing it, roots, right, but it's right. not middle grade, even though it's written by sometimes sixteen, <laughs> fifteen year old authors. I mean, I I would say like a big. Like, like, if we're going to point to, like, the biggest name in YA movies, it's John Green. You know, like, there's no ifs sure. or buts around that. Um, and, like, he, I think, and his success, especially with The Fault in Our Stars, is what um, I think really, one, made room for these, like, dramatic teen movies. Right. So, all like, the, all the bright, all the bright, bright places. places, like, sort of fits more into that. Everything, and the half everything. of it. To, to the half extent. of it. Yeah. 
Um, but then, you know, I think these like fun, <laughs> fun ones, I think are very much just the teen versions of like 50 shades of gray a little bit. Like, right. you know, yeah, it's, I think, I think it draws on that same fan ficky kind of, of mode of expression that's, that's easily right. identifiable, but you can't always, you know, peg down like the limits of it because so much YA fiction is trope filled, but I think fan ficky sure. stuff, it's some, it somehow feels sometimes a little bit more trope filled, sometimes a little bit more self inserty, sometimes a little bit yeah. more, um, I mean, a Especially, you know, like these like kissing booth style and, uh, you know, like the the movie After, which was based on like a right. Harry Styles self-insert fanfic. Right. You know? That one's not uh, Netflix, but it is very much in that vein. And it's, uh, yeah. is that Noah Centennial also? No, no, no it's not. Sorry. It's it's someone else. Getting it confused with like SPF 18 <laughs> or whatever. Right. It's all just like brown haired, adorable, square jawed dudes in their 20s. Like that's. <laughs> That's what all of this is. Um, so we are a podcast called Talking Tropes. And I know sometimes we start to sound like talking industry or talking, <laughs> uh, you know, other things. Anything except tropes. tropes. Just Stanley Tucci. We're just But I think Tucci that this tropes. is a genre where we can really identify uh, the tropes that make it up, the tropes that make it what it is. Uh, and we can really identify which tropes that aren't essential but do appear very commonly uh, and, and I think that the easiest way to do that is to look on TV tropes at one of the most trope filled, uh, entries on this list, which is the kissing booth. Right. And, and is sort of stated, um, you know, in that Hollywood reporter article as kind of the kickoff, at least for Netflix is, yeah. uh, like whole shebang in this in this uh right so genre. you know even though they might not admit to this maybe as they're looking at other scripts they're like can we add in some of the things that worked in kissing booth that people liked right. uh you know things that that might sort of spill over into these other productions even though they're mostly independent uh as far yeah. as i know um okay so <laughs> i have the, the the tropes page uh open one of the first ones li listed is the actor illusion not illusion, but allusion. They're alluding to uh, the fact that Molly Ringwald uh, was yeah. in these 80s uh, rom-coms. And now uh, Molly Ringwald, they actually brought her in to play the friend's mom. You know, it's very Winona Ryder in Stranger Things, you know. Right, exactly. It's it's a it's trying to make you aware of the nostalgia and aware of the reference, the genre awareness that they're going to be relying on. Um, right. Because, you know, it it like almost all media, <laughs> I think, you know, now here in the 2020s, um, you know, audiences are very genre savvy and very trope aware and media in general is very genre savvy and trope aware and like certainly these movies are no exception right but i think that there's something even more to these because they're only being produced because everyone's had these scripts forever uh right. you know sitting on their shelves and now they're just finally ready to like oh Finally, we can do like a big 80s Ferris Bueller type movie again. Oh, finally, we can do a 16 Candles again. Uh, right. And, uh, you know, 16 Candles is like um, uh, one of the characters favorite uh, favorite movies in, in Into All the Boys. It's it's uh, right. Laura Jean's favorite, right? I think so. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, you know, like they love these movies. They reference these movies. That's what's happening. Um, right. Which, you know, I think also feels real, like feels real to the teens today. Um, yeah, and sure. feels real to teens of like many eras. Like I, I remember my friends and I doing like 80s teen movie, like movie nights, you know, like we would mm. sit down and watch The Breakfast Club and Ferris Bueller and, you know, be like, these are the classics. Yes. But at the same time, so, a lot of these movies, I think right now, like maybe not five or 10 years ago, but right now are actually yeah. really difficult to find streaming. A lot of them have like a lot of copyrighted music that could be dif difficult to license. A lot of them have more problematic aspects to it that 
maybe people are more yeah. hesitant to feature them on their sites. You know, it's like mm-hmm. Molly Ringwald published a piece about like the problematic things of those John Hughes movies and the tropes and, yeah. and whatnot. So maybe it's like we're trying to do these movies again so that people can see a version of them that's more, you know, cleaned up, uh, a little bit more sanitized or and, and more topical, more more relevant uh (laughs) for sure for sure uh also here's a trope that i think is really central to a lot of these movies is uh all girls want bad boys and uh i think that noah the character in uh in the kissing booth is like the epitome of the bad boy that that the protagonist falls for Um, oh yeah he beats people up He's a he, he's his basically his only trait that I know of is that he's like really protective of yeah. L and he's like he's just a fighter violent. guy who drives a motorcycle. Yeah. Like <laughs> and and like especially with the kissing booth, you know, it certainly feels like a piece of fiction that was written by a 15 year old you know and like that is both good in, and in all of the best way prob- i think yeah you know? yeah it, it has that um, kind of fanfic purity to it or you know like just innocence you know or sure. it's like you like yeah v- you vince, imagine- uh, vince marcello called it a a sweet sexuality that it wasn't like lascivious it was right you know an obsession with like virginity and losing virginity in a way that could almost only be written by somebody who has just lost their virginity or who hasn't lost their virginity or hasn't yeah like that's that's the thing about a lot of fan fiction is you know it is not written necessarily by people who are sexually active but who want to be um and have like the imagined sexual experience more than uh, right any real lived dating experience Absolutely. You know, like the, this is, uh, like pure wish fulfillment in so many ways. And I feel like, you know, that both comes from media that these kids have absorbed when they're writing it. Um, and also just from, you know, desires that they're having as teens. And like, there's definitely a sense of authenticity to that. Um, right. However, do you think any of that is lost of... in the translation to, you know, these films? Because I think, unlike a lot of uh, <laughs> literary adaptations, I think there's more liberties taken with dialogue. Like you hand it over to a professional dialogue writer, and right. you hand it off to somebody who like gets character dialogue more. And so that sort of authenticity of, you know, you're really cool. I like how cool you are. Might be lost. But also it's, it's like that authenticity in that specific way doesn't Uh necessarily make for good fiction and doesn't make for good. I think you're probably right. But at the same time, there's a real inauthenticity to some of the dialogue in the kissing booth, which feels very, you know, Gen Xer writing or something, Um, you know, trying to write youthfully, like the scene where Elle has just been sexually harassed by a student and she expresses that by saying, Dude touched my lady bump, which she's referring to her her ass, which I mean everyone has an ass. Yeah, it's not uh, much of a lady bump. Yeah, but how many how many dudes got that juicy lady bump ass? David is, uh, I mean, some of uh, but them. But dude, is the but dude touched my lady bump is like I feel like something that I'm gonna remember for a long time. Yeah, not and that no one actually quality. says. It. Right. Uh, no and then Tall Girl was that. another one that I felt like had some real, you know, adult written dialogue. Uh, like uh, when uh, when the popular girl says, uh, Stiggy baby, would you mind getting mama a diet squish? <laughs> you know, it's a it's an attempt to translate a YA sensibility to uh, to film for a, a broader audience um, and trying to be funny also kind of poking fun at the characters by making them say silly oh, things. Oh, sure. Right. And, and I mean, you know, lots of people also have complaints the other way with 
like the John Green style of doing things where, you know, instead of everyone sounding like super hip and or trying to sound super hip and teen, you know, right. everyone, everyone just sounds, sounds like, like a 35 year old depressed uh, <laughs> writer. <laughs> <laughs> right. But like, you know, as as an angsty, intelligent teen myself, I was very much like, maybe this isn't how I talk, but it's how I wish I talked. Like, you know, right. like there's it's it's how I think a lot of mm. the time. Um, and so I, I, you know, I personally prefer the John Green style of perhaps overwriting and uh, like these kids versus the sort of more pop version where it's like. I don't know what's the hip lingo today, kiddos. Like it, that feels. <laughs> Any, anytime any to character me. in any movie says unsubscribed, I think this will oh. be very dated in a year, or it's already dated. But it's already dated. Um, or any unsubscribed. Jokes about, <laughs> honestly, any jokes about Twitter too are just the worst. Um, all right, let's move on to the to some more more juicy tropes. Um, yes. Almost all of these movies, I don't think I saw any that didn't have an alpha bitch character, uh, as in like the popular girl who's above and beyond the main character who surpasses her in every way. I don't think I saw a single one that didn't have this. I mean, so like, I would say the half of it does not, but I think the half of it um kind of falls outside of a lot of these right well, it's, yeah tropes. it's going for more prestige it would it would sort of be borderline but i would say you know like even in to all the boys where the character is sort of like an ex-friend of larjean yeah. and then later yeah. becomes more friendly with her in the sequels um you know she still like embodies the idea of there's a girl she's more popular than me with the boys the boys i like like her or liked her right um She's a little bit mean. She's a little bit, uh, you know, unfriendly in some way. And right. often is just know, made to be like girl. a villain. You know, we, if, yeah. you need, if you need to have a villain in a story like this. Because because everyone's be had a mean girl. Level. Everyone's had a mean girl in their life. Everyone's had a bully of some kind, you know. Right, but I don't know if you could, could you identify one particular girl who, who, embodied all of the hierarchies of your school like i mean we went to no, a pretty no, big I mean, high school but yeah so still. so a lot of a lot of the you know specifics of you know this is a 400 person high school and your graduating <laughs> class is 100 people so you just know sure. everyone like that kind of nuance is uh you know not exactly our high school experience but i just i guess um, i just would imagine that a lot of people's experience is that you couldn't really identify one singular bully popular sure. hot girl that sure, is but, just you know, the pinnacle of mean girl <laughs> clichés like people are I, I more don't know. human I, than that I, people are definitely more human than that um and i i agree that no one is all of the popular girl clichés but i think that um you know again this is fiction this is why we sure. have tropes like this is right. because for the the convenience of the story we're not going to have you have to understand the humanity of four of these <laughs> Right. like high school bullies we can just have one and she says the mean stuff and then the character feels bad and action happens you know right but i, like, I just i'm just you... saying because this is one thing that i liked a lot about the two all the boys movies is that she uh -huh. was only like a temporary alpha bitch like she was sure. friends with her before and then temporarily stopped being friends because they were fighting over a guy uh and then you know came sort of to blows over that over social media yeah and then that broke the the you know the smoke cleared and then by the end of the trilogy they're back to being like good friends again so it's i think it's a more true to life sort of uh dynamic you know speaking from a, an intensely male perspective but still um i i another trope that's definitely common in all of these is like the friend breakup um, and then the, like, friendship reconnect, like, the friendship moment, you know, uh, specifically in, in the kissing booth, we have that with the very dumb, like, dance dance revolution scene, 
where right. he's like, was, come on. I wonder if that was in the Wattpad novel or if that was added for the film. Because <laughs> it's such a big part of the no sequel. Idea. In the in Kissing Booth 2, it's all about a Dance Dance Revolution competition that has like a huge oh, audience. Shit. Where everyone's gathered in this auditorium to watch people do performative, and you get scored on style by like judges. It's not just like a high score competition. It's like that's factored in. Oh god, and and the the hot boy that they bring in to be the rival of Noah is really good at DDR. He's the best Ah! at DDR, other than other than L, of course. Who's the best? Which DDR heartthrob will she choose? <laughs> um, but I think I think you know maybe we're beating around the bush of like the biggest trope of of this movie is the big damn kiss, the first kiss, the you know virginal kiss that brings you into uh you know into adulthood that 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 like cracks the cocoon of right. of puberty. <laughs> Um, the, the big kiss in this movie is like a, oops, I accidentally kissed this person on purpose because of the kissing booth and the blindfold and the switching people out at the last minute, sort of like, uh, you know, trying to make it, what if you had to kiss the boy that you liked? Not you wanted to kiss the boy that you want to kiss, but what if you had to? Had to. They were forcing you to, and the social embarrassment of not kissing them would be worse than the social embarrassment of kissing them. So that's like a very teen sort of wish fulfillment thing. Absolutely. It's, it's robbing both characters of agency and kind of like smashing them together like Barbie dolls, you know? I mean, that's definitely what a lot of these teen movies are because when you don't rob them of agencies, like in Sarah Burgess, it gets a little creepy. <laughs> well, no, no. I mean, that one, it's also robbing at least one of them of agency. Because oh, absolutely. Sierra Burgess yeah. has to pop out of, out from under a car and kiss the guy while he's blindfolded, but she knows fully right. what she's doing. So right. I, I get it's what you're saying weird. there. But what if you just had two characters who wanted to kiss who then decided to, to kiss? I mean, the reason they don't do yeah. that is because there's no conflict. But the, right. the conflict is always like, oh, I can't kiss this person. It would be that would be crazy. But then you have well, because, to because someone spun but, a bottle or they put you in right. seven minutes in heaven or, you know, yeah. all the things that we do to mask our actual desires behind socially constructed games of of romance to test it out the intricate rituals yeah (laughs) what's another good trope oh here's one that i think is interesting and it speaks to kind of the lack of definition to a lot of these characters the sort of fanficy style of you know the characters are a little self-inserty or they represent people in your real life um and that's the the trope is called uh i love you because i can't control you which is just based on a line that Noah says where it's like, I like it when you get bossy. And that happens in multiples (laughs) of these films. The, the idea that like you're cute when you're bossy, you're cute when you're, or it's like, I'm attracted to you because you, you know, you're not not a pushover to me. Right. Right. Exactly. Which I think is very twilight, you you know, like you talk back to me. Yeah. That's like, that's the whole appeal of twilight is that, right? but it's also 50 shades. It's also, well, I mean, of course it's 50, it's 50 shades because it's twilight. Like and it's, it's twilight because, you know, Edward cannot read Bella's mind and like, (laughs) so he he can't know her and the not knowing is so mysterious and you know it just turns like being a human into a superpower which is exactly what like teenage girls want in their romance they they want to think that and and i think teenage boys too you know the the act of just being yourself is super amazing um no matter how bossy you are how tricky you are or any of that um and of course you know half of these movies there's always like a trick or a gimmick that's going on and then you, you've got to overcome that that's right. that's the major plot conflict and then i think for me one of the most important tropes to a lot of these movies is the missing mom 
Where are our moms? Mars needs moms. moms. Netflix needs moms. I mean, this is like getting worse than Disney. You know, like Disney movies don't have moms. I think it speaks to why, you know, nobody... Whenever they make that observation that a lot of Disney characters have missing or dead moms, uh, they don't try and explain why. And they don't they don't try and like address like why is this like kind of a wish fulfillment for people that they actually want to not have a mother character there but are okay with like a father figure or something. And it's it's because I... these are like coming of age stories. Right. Where the character feels lost and confused and a good way to represent that without actually putting in the effort to explain it or, you know, define why their childhood would leave them unprepared for adulthood. They simply say they don't have a role model for what adult womanhood looks like. And they portray that by just having a missing mom. Sure. Yeah. And so you see that in kissing booth to all the boys, uh, not tall girl. There was another one though. The half of it was it there. The that was missing it. a mother. Yeah. Um, yeah. I forget. Is Sierra Burgess have parents? No, she has a mom. But this is the other thing that's common in sort of this other subgenre of these, where uh-huh. it's about the main character feeling like they're they're ugly or unattractive compared with their mom. So you see that right. in Tall Girl and in Dumplin, and then also uh, you know. In, you know any other uh, one where they Burgess. feel unattractive sierra burgess because her mom is uh the the mom from uh back to the future <laughs> right <laughs> again referencing 80s movies and her dad is uh cameron from ferris bueller so <laughs> right <laughs> god the casting uh so stupid but <laughs> so 80s <laughs> but that that's the thing is like the missing mom i think is is somewhat central to a lot of these because yeah it's about not having someone to just ask, like, well, what was it like when you started dating boys? You know? Right, exactly. What was or, it, you, you know, know, what was that about? <laughs> right. And, you know, a lot of these movies are also very straight. Um, like, sure. that's sure. that's definitely, I think, a major trope uh, for a lot of them is, is definitely and, the heteronormativity. Yeah, and, and most they of them tend, are pretty white, yeah. They tend to be pretty white, Um which is why I think, you know, especially movies like To All the Boys I've Loved Before um, and like the half of it kind of get a little bit more prestige is because those two in particular focus on um, Asian American main characters and in the half of it, uh, it's also gay, um, you know, and, and it's interesting um we were talking a little bit about what makes these movies prestige or what makes right. them sort of can't be fun. And what um, makes the source and, material prestige or can't be fun. Right, exactly. And the definitely the inclusion of diverse characters or diverse voices and especially main characters, um, I think, adds an element of prestige to some of these movies that generally rely on similar tropes. Um, you know, like they are still about teens texting each other (laughs) and miscommunication. Um, but you know, like the, the, it, it feels novel and, uh, is exciting to both those communities and I think general audiences because we are not oversaturated with movies starring, uh, you know, Asian American characters or black characters or latino characters in these romantic roles um and i think you know the more that we continue to do this i think we'll start to see more campy versions of these uh kinds of films pop up with right. those kind i mean of characters. It's, it's what you have with any sort of large scale industry cycle so the yeah. first stage is no one makes rom-coms anymore because no one wants to watch them. And then somebody says, wait, everyone wants to watch this one that has all white people and it's super straight and it's, you know, totally yeah. tropish and whatever. And then as you make more and more that are more popular, you're like, how can we get more of this demographic? How can we get more of this audience? How can we get more prestige? How can we get less prestige? How can we, you know, touch all the things? How can we get more dramatic right. and more comedic? More... How can we get the gay musical theater nerds in? I know the prom. Right. 
Right. Can we can we can we make a, a thriller out of this? Like you get me. Right. Or uh, can yeah. we make a you know something that's more uh, more of like a musical like challenge like um, what was the one uh, work it or or something something work it uh, it was like a dance one. Um, oh, step up. It? No, it wasn't though. step up. It was like step up, but like more rom commy almost like Pitch but Perfect now. meets Step Up. Um, okay, interesting. God, I just got to find it. No, yeah, it's called Work It. I was right the first time. Okay. Work It. It's produced by Alicia Keys. Okay. Oh, okay. well, there you fucking go. There's your prestige. <laughs> Damn. Um, off, girl. But, uh, yeah, I, I want to sort of switch gears a little bit. Can we talk about, like, the types of characters how they're defined, the commonalities between the trope characters, basically male lead, female lead, and, like, let's just hit that. So sure. the the girls, they tend to be a little self-inserty, but, like, what character traits do you see repeated across some of these different movies? They're almost always romantic, um, you know, right. like... They love uh, romantic movies more right. than their peers, even. They write or, love letters to their, right. you know, crushes. Whether or, whether or not save it's movies. Everything. Right. Whether or not it's movies or books or, like, right. what reading, have you. They like, reading bodice rippers or right. watching they, romantic they comedies. To, or, um, you know, they tend to be a little nerdy. You know, they're they're the like hashtag not like other girls a little bit. Right. Good. It's um, good in school. Very few are yeah. like struggling in school. Oh yeah, almost none. I don't think any of them are like struggling in school. Or if they are, um, we don't see it. You know, it didn't make right. it into the adaptation. Entirely irrelevant. Um. Yeah, and you know, like they. They all have crushes that they're too shy to talk to, but you know, like that's the whole point of the teenage rom com is your teen and they're all going to college, but some of them are struggling to get money to go to college. That's true. And most that's, of them have no idea what they're going to study or or are studying something generic enough that it doesn't really you know, it's you're not thinking like, well, why aren't they focusing on their schoolwork? You know, none of them right. are becoming nurses or doctors because then you'd be thinking, why aren't they really buckling down? <laughs> why are they so fixated on this stuff? They're like, I'm doing English lit or, you know, history or, you know, one of the soft sciences or one of the arts. Right. right. That's what I yeah. see a lot. I mean, definitely that, um, you know, like a lot of them are are self-inserts again. So it's like, what would the person writing this want to go do in college? You know, sure. or like, what's a gen, oh, I'm going to go study uh, uh, physics. <laughs> like, um, you know, it's it doesn't need to be particularly defined. Um, but I think that that time, like that time pressure of graduations coming up or prom is coming up or one of, if, you know, the main character isn't a senior Maybe their love interest is a senior, and so, you know, they're stressing about where to go and what to do and what will happen. Um, you know, like, some of these are about everyone who's a senior, and it's the summer before college, and the right. hijinks that it's I, I definitely got some vibes, the same ones that I got from Marriage or Mortgage, where you're like, make the sensible life decision don't go to college based on where your friend is going or where your love interest is. Go to the right. college that you can afford, that has classes then, that you want to take, that has faculty that you like, that has a good environment yeah. for you. Like, oh my God, right. don't choose love and romance over, you know, sensible planning. But I mean, it's the same as in marriage or mortgage. They only make that decision about, you know, half the time. Right, right. <laughs> um, ugh. Yeah, it's... Um, what about the boys? What about uh, all the boys I've loved before? Oh, they're, like, all jocks, basically. All jocks, um, yeah. You know, if they're not they're jocks, all... then you have to explain, like, why they're so good-looking. Like, oh, he's from Sweden, where they're all like that. Right, they just look that way. Right, um, I mean, and I, I guess in Dumplin', he's not a, a jock, but he is a himbo. You know, it's like he's... he's a himbo. They're not liked for their intelligence usually which um 
you know, I've seen no. some like explanations of this that I think are decent. Like I, there was like a Tumblr post that went viral that was like, you know, people don't want himbos because they like stupid men, but because they like men who don't, uh, you know, try and one up them all the time with their intelligence or belittle <laughs> their intelligence. So, I mean, I think there's something to that as like why like himbos, delightful idiots are kind of in yeah. vogue right now. Um, oh, for sure. For sure. Um, in the same yeah. way that like brainy girls are in vogue right now. Nerdy girls Absolutely. are in vogue. You know, yeah. it, those th- those pendulums can swing, you know, elsewhere. It's, mm-hmm. uh, you know, for a while it was quirky girls, you know, for a while it was. I mean, I feel like brainy girls was, are very uh, similar to quirky girls, but. Yeah, no, you, you've got a point. Uh, but, you know, sometimes it's more like bad boys. Sometimes it's more like lovable nerd boys. Sometimes it's more like depressed boys, <laughs> you know, emo boys. You know, like there's yeah. different trends and pendulums that swing. But right now mm-hmm. it's it's himbo zone for, it's for, for days. <laughs> definitely himbo zone, um, which I will take. I love the himbo zone. <laughs> <laughs> Right. Um, but uh, um, I think Noah know, Centineo, all generally... he's always like a little bit awkward. So like, that's why yeah. you like him. And uh, whereas like the Noah character in uh, in Kissing Booth, he's just like totally cool, like refuses to break the cool vibe. Um, yeah. And and he's a bad boy because he punches people and rides a motorcycle. <laughs> there you go. and he's a and he's a he's a casanova you know he's always hitting on like multiple girls which is not always true for all of these people but usually they have at least one other romantic interest to be a rival for the lead anything else on on the boys uh um i mean they're usually tall white with brown hair Tall like, white brown hair, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's that's the general vibe on the some boys. like sometimes you can go like a little more tan than white, you know, like they're Latino yeah, or they're you know yeah. uh they're if ambiguously go, raced right, <laughs> or ethni- right. ambiguous ethnicity. But you never yeah. wanna go, you know, oh like God forbid, you know, not An white Asian? not POC. Yeah. Oh my goodness. Yeah. Um, <laughs> uh, I mean, all the right places, uh, you know, he's black. Um, in, sure. In yeah. And he's uh, like a big movie star. So, you know, it's like. Right. You know, um, there's there's something to you need to have you need to have like that prestige in order to deviate from, you know, the white the white people's. <laughs> right. And, you know, also part of this is because most of these are being adapted from white authors. Right, um, who are more like, likely to get published, you know. Or yeah, exactly. Like much more likely. Yeah. Right. Um, I mean, you know, to all the boys I loved before and uh, uh, the half of it are both notable exceptions, I think, because they are original stories by Asian-American women. Um and right. And there's art. cultural specificity in there, right. more so in the sequel, I think, than in the first one. Um, For Tall the Boys, yeah. Yeah. Like, in the first one, she kind of just presents as, like, her style is, like, 60s housewife meets, like, Instagram... Uh, influencer. <laughs> Instagram influencer. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> She's baking yeah. constantly. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> And then in the second one, you know, they they go to Korea and like mm-hmm. there's you know fun with that and uh, right, yeah, lots lots of more stuff going on in sequels. Yeah. Uh, right. Sequels often will introduce a, a rival boy of some kind, yes, yes, uh, because Gotta you have can't a rival boy, right? Or otherwise, they may just have no conflict. Like uh, to all the boys, always and forever, just has no conflict in it. Uh, they forgot to write one. They just said, what if the whole movie is just them being kind of upset about going to different schools and then nothing else of substance happens in the whole movie? Yeah, Um, welcome to the it's I mean, it's YA. That's that's pretty adapted from the book. But it's like to Um, all the boys references like uh, Adventures in Babysitting, which is like a teen rom-com adventure, you know, mm -hmm. from the 80s. That is has a plot, you know. Things happen in it. They get chased by mobsters. 
<laughs> just add in some mobsters to some of these or something like, you know, give me something to work with. Right. <laughs> you know, uh, just because the focus God. is romance doesn't mean the whole thing has to be, I think. Oh, God. These movies. <laughs> um, I don't know. Are there any other, like, major tropes? I feel like we've really touched on quite a bit. I guess the thing that I would want to leave off on is, is all of these movies about, you know, the insecure girl who thinks that they're really ugly. Yeah. None of them have been brave enough to cast somebody who's actually unattractive. Ugly. Yeah. Uh, you yeah. know, Dumplin', Tall Girl... Uh, I mean, I would Sierra say Dumplin', Dumplin' comes the closest because they did actually cast, like, a fat woman, you know? Right, like well, but, but she's, like, but like, she's still very attractive, you know, she's still Hollywood-looking. Right. And I yes. think the, the reason that Dumplin' works more so than, like, her actual, you know, level of attractiveness, because, of course, it's, like, totally believable that the, the hot guy who works at the burger stand falls for her anyway. Um mm. But the thing is just that she has really low self-esteem because of her relationship with her mother, who is a right. a literal pageant, you know, queen. Right, <laughs> um, yes. And, uh, you know, I think D- Dumplin' works a lot better than Tall Girl for that reason, because in Tall Girl, it's just that her mom was short and her sister is short. And they're <laughs> Tall popular. Girl is the dumbest, most made-up like fucking problem of a movie. I mean, she looks like a model. She's like exactly a... like literally no one in high school would be like, "Fuck you, you're tall." <laughs> like, right. sure, I I can I guess empathize with like I I personally never understood the like, you I don't date well, guys shorter than me. Well, you're not tall, but. So. I mean, I'm very average, but there are definitely men shorter than me, and I know a bizarre right. number. And there's of women like so much internet that, discourse but... about like all the guys are like, no, this is just girls saying that they won't date short guys, and then like the girls are like, no, you don't understand. It's the social pressure outside of the individual boy, and it's about being you know fetishized, and it's like there's all these different like angles to it. It's there's a lot of discourse on it, which is why I think Tall Girl invites such, you know. Uh, not vitriol exactly, but just like discussion. I mean, definitely vitriol. Yeah, like I, I would say, you know, of these movies, um, you know, like there's definitely big fandoms for many of them. Um, but like the there's also hate dumbs, you know, yeah. for a couple of these. Some of these people just don't care about, but like. Tall Girl and Sarah Burgess, for sure, have hate dumbs. Like, you can type in those names on YouTube and find a trillion and a half, like, video essays or takedown videos about, like, these movies. Because I think they tend to be... The characters are a little bit more flawed in addition to being a a lot more self-hating or insecure. They they do things that are, you know, unlikable. Which, you know, it's right. like in the kissing booth, like, n- she can never do anything that's, like, wrong. Even when she's, like, right. constantly third-wheeling her friend and uh, friend's uh, date, you know, to right. the point that they break up. It's like, well, I didn't know I was doing anything wrong because no one ever told me. And it's like, well, you could have <laughs> just you could have just wrote her, like, being legitimately inconsiderate and, like, not thinking that she needs to apologize and then learning something. But you right. chose to have it that she's always in the right because she's self self insert, you know, she's you. Whereas Tall Girl and Sierra Burgess, like, they do pretty despicable things in their pursuit of like guys. Like Tall Girl, she kisses somebody who's dating the the you know the alpha bitch like hot girl. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, in uh, in Sierra Burgess, she catfishes a dude. <laughs> um, and so I think that invites invites some of the hate, but it's also just that like yeah. they're so self hating and so not self aware about how attractive they are relative to like a lot of the audience. Yeah, <laughs> I think that's uh. a big a big deal. And it's not like you know obviously like fat phobia and like height prejudice and just general like you know over overly critical uh, you know or, or what's what's the you know just like body uh shaming body shaming in general is like a huge issue but i think i think maybe it ignites something when you see hollywood level attractive actors 
saying, yeah. well, no one could ever love me because I'm so fat. And then the person watching is like, okay, well, you don't even Hollywood know what fat, fat really is. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so it definitely, you know, these movies still fall into those, uh, you know, film industry traps around attractiveness. Um, for sure. I think. Yeah. I don't know how to wrap this up <laughs> at all. I don't know either. Did you want to say anything more about reception? Cause you mentioned briefly, like which ones have fandoms and which ones have hate thumbs. Yeah. I think, you know, on, on the fandom front, I think the ones that tend to have some of the best response are those movies that like, you know, Netflix is not wrong. If you come into a movie or TV show from an existing IP, you are bringing along fans. Um, and chances are a good portion of those fans are going to like what you did and are going to, like, blog about your movie everywhere. They're going to tweet about it. They're going to post about it on Tumblr. They're right. going to freak out about it in their fandom spaces. And that's going to bring new people in who are already of a similar um, persuasion. So, you know, like, like to all the boys I loved before has this huge fandom because there already was one. Same thing sure. with, you know, a lot of the John Green movies. Um like Sierra Burgess, not as much because like there's like I'm sure there are some people who really liked this movie, but like the hate dumb for that is much louder than the fandom. Um sure. like the perfect date. Again, I'm sure there are people who like love this movie, but they are not like still tweeting about it two years later, you know? Yeah. Whereas people are still talking about To All the Boys I've Loved Before and are still talking about some of these other films. Yeah, is it, as far as, like, hate-dums go, it, some of it may also be related to the idea that, like, these are films for teenage girls, the most overly criticized group of consumers on the planet. They're, yeah. you know, stereotyped as frivolous. They're stereotyped as, you know, unserious there are serious movies on this list. There are movies that yeah. should be taken seriously. And even the ones that aren't, I think as like a genre, they're not prestige films, they're genre films, but right. they embody that genre in creative uh, and interesting ways. And I think that you right. know, it, it can be an instinct to write off the teen rom-com because it's aimed at a demographic that is younger and younger means less refined or whatever, but no, mm-hmm. Old people watch terrible movies like Green Book. So, you know, that's I, that's my Old go-to example of, like, everything about that is prestige. Everything about right. it is, like, geared towards an older, more refined, more well-to-do, wealthy uh, audience. And yet, terrible, terrible movie. So... Yeah. You know, you you can't you can't find quality with that. Uh, what would you say is like the 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 best hidden gem uh, of of these movies that you watched? Um. Oh God. I mean, the half of it is incredible. I right, I'm obsessed with that movie now. Um. But I I think it it's almost kind of tangentially related to these like it doesn't quite fit sure. the the model um, but that that can know, be it, fine too i mean it's often the genre bending or genre twisting or genre breaking right. films right. that make that define a genre uh, for right the like i i would say you know in the same way that like juno was very informative for like quirky 2000s right. like teen movies um, right, mumblecore or post mumblecore or whatever you would call it. <laughs> um, yeah, I don't even know exactly mumblecore's meaning, so I will trust you on that one. Uh, don't um, trust me. On that. I, I was just saying. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, the um, I I would definitely say I I can only hope that Sierra or not Sierra Burgess got that uh that the half of it. Um, could could be that kind of touching, kind of hidden gem flagship uh, film that I, I hope inspires more creative and uh, passionate filmmaking in this genre, right. is what I would and, say. And just in order to pick one that's not that, so that there's a second one, uh, I'm going to yeah. go 
with uh, Dumplin', I think, is sort of a hidden gem. Uh, yeah. I think Jennifer Aniston does really well uh, in, in her role. I think all the friendships are really neat and interesting. Uh, and the incorporation of drag into uh, pageantry as a way yeah. of sort of queering the str- the overt straightness of pageantry, I think is really uh, touching, inspiring, maybe a little dated. Like maybe the, the fact that the adaptation came so late is a flaw of the industry that we, you know, the trend wasn't on. But now right. that it's here, I think still uh, a, a good, a solid movie, a solid example yeah. of the genre that I would recommend to pretty much anybody. Totally. I, I agree with you. Um, if you have a favorite teen movie that we didn't discuss, please tweet or us. Or didn't discuss enough. Uh, or didn't discuss enough. Yeah, tweet us at um, at Talking Tropes, and uh, maybe we'll give it a, a look see and and uh, dig into it a little bit more, a little media. Yeah, uh, we're already but... thinking about doing a little mini episode with a more in depth look at Sierra Burgess yes. and the half of it. So mm-hmm. we'd be happy to do that uh, if people are excited about it, or even if you're not. And uh, if you <laughs> we're gonna other... do it if you're not. <laughs> <laughs> if you have any other ones that you're like, I really feel like you should have talked more about all the bright places or, or whatever, uh, let us know. Yes, definitely. Uh, thanks for listening, guys. We'll be back at you next week with, I believe, a Stanley Tucci. Hell yeah. Uh, standing Stanley Tucci, where we watch all of Stanley Tucci's filmography. We're, yep. we're doing it all. all Every of inch of Tucci screen time is going yeah. to be ours. Uh, we'll, we'll see you then, and uh, bye-bye. Bye-bye.